Are Mennonites allowed to like fireworks? I suppose it's a little bit late to ask. I've already been to two Fourth of July parties this weekend. I didn't actually see any fireworks. I heard them. And I find them strangely comforting. It's peculiar, I suppose, uh, to find comfort in the sound of fireworks booming off in the distance. Perhaps it's because I've never been in a war. I had an Uncle Wayne who served um, multiple tours in Vietnam, and when he came home, the sound of firecrackers would cause him to dive in the ground and cover his head with his hands. My closest experience was being in northern Nicaragua during the Contra War and hearing machine gun and mortar fire off in the distance, which was alarming um, because we'd been told in our orientation how to behave if we got caught up in a Contra attack. I slept badly that night. But the sound of fireworks doesn't bother me. When I was a junior high school age kid in Haverstraw, New York, um, our town celebrated the 300th anniversary of its founding. What was being celebrated was the selling of the region in 1666 by the Lenny Lenape Confederation of the Algonquins to a New York merchant with the unlikely name of Balthazar de Hart. I didn't know any of that back then. I looked it up online. All I knew was that the occasion meant a week-long fair. So I turned in soda bottles by the dozen. You could do that back then. And saved my nickels for the fair. It was a boy's dream that fair. Food, games, rides, and fireworks. Fireworks. I don't know if it was my age, but they sure seemed better back then. Louder, brighter, more magical. It probably was my age. Although we weren't all that far from Chinatown, where the best fireworks were made. At least that's what we boys told each other in that um, knowing way of young male adolescence. I especially, I especially like the loud ones, the big boomers, that single bright flash followed by an explosion that you could feel hit your chest. Every fireworks show had its pleasures, but that 300th anniversary display was the best ever. On that last night of the fair, guided by hormones and not brains, I did my best to get as close to the fireworks as possible. And I succeeded in getting close enough to feel the debris rain down on me. Shreds of paper, bits of grit, and whatever else was in those fireworks. And then the next day I went back and discovered the remains of dozens of outsized firecrackers scattered over the fairground. And I wandered around inspecting what seemed for all the world like a battlefield. I left covered with ash and maybe just a bit, well, cockier because of what I'd seen, because I'd had a little glimpse behind the curtain. I'd been able to exchange mystery for a form of knowledge, and in my youth, that exchange seemed like a good thing. I suppose the sound of fireworks is, is comforting because it draws me back to that innocence. The booms and cracks resurrect those middle school days and the smell of fair food, the wheezy sound of the carousel, the awareness of being very young in a very old place, rooted someplace deep, but already fixing to fly away into whatever the future held. In those days, anything seemed possible. Maybe someday someone would walk on the moon. Well, I wasn't a Mennonite back then. Never even heard of you all. Pentecostals were what I knew. And every Sunday I worshipped in a sanctuary decorated with two flags. The Christian flag, of which I have very little recollection, except that it was there. My memory is that it was blue and maybe had a cross on it, but I could be wrong. And then across the pulpit from the Christian flag was, of course, the American flag. 
I don't really recall any of the kind of God and country sermons that are so popular today. I don't recall my dad or any visiting evangelist preaching about our nation being the hope of the world or especially blessed by God. Now, in retrospect, I suppose such an understanding was the subtext of all those um, sermons about the darkness of the mission field and the bleakness of the Soviet Union. By implication, ours was the bright land, the sun to Western Europe's fading moon. I also don't recall ever being challenged to hold my patriotism in check, to beware of presuming that we were a blessed and even chosen nation. There were lots of things to be wary of, lots of things to avoid as a good Christian. Alcohol, tobacco, sex, illicit thoughts about any of those things, lying, cheating, stealing, all things worth avoiding, all things worth being protected from in my youth, all sorts of fire ready to burn my hands and soul if I were foolish or weak or naive enough to test them. And those prohibitions made sense, and they still make sense, I think. They make for healthy bodies and for a healthy community. But as I said, I don't recall being challenged um, to consider the risk of overzealous patriotism, which is odd since putting one's trust in the nation state is one of the oldest forms of idolatry and the source of much prophetic preaching in the scripture. It's complicated, isn't it, this, this question of how we are to feel and think about our country. We are clear beneficiaries of our nation's political and economic systems. We enjoy freedom, uh, both political and economic, which, if our pundits are be, to be believed, uh, are the envy of the world. And everyday people come to our borders desperate to get even a small piece of the American dream. The benefits of being a 21st century uh, U.S. citizen are enormous. But we've all been taught, I suspect, to be grateful for what we have, to offer thanks to God for every good gift. Doing so is right and good and altogether Christian, so long as the gratitude is offered to God and not our government or our way of life, so long as we don't start thinking that the benefits of life in the United States are directly the result of our special righteousness or our special relationship to God, so long as we don't begin to think of ourselves as uniquely loved by God, a chosen people who are rightly blessed which is, I think, where things tend to get a little fuzzy for us. And it's a fuzziness with a really long history. The people of Israel often made the very same mistake. They would begin by giving thanks to God for good gifts, for good land, healthy crops, for the law. They began by understanding themselves to be dependent on the giver of those gifts. They understood themselves as wholly blessed, not deserving of all that good, but the recipients of unmerited grace. They were chosen, yes, but through nothing they had done. But over time, things tended to get fuzzy. And so much of the Hebrew Bible is composed of the story of that fuzziness and its consequences. Sometimes the people would believe that God's blessing was in direct proportion to their righteousness. It was a gift, yes, but one that was given in response to their behavior. More reward for good behavior uh, than a true gift. Sometimes they believed that whatever blessings they enjoyed were the result of the wisdom or heroism of their human king. Sometimes they believed that they were the only people God loved, the only people God intended to save. And sometimes they mistook their national interests for the interests of God, so that what was good for Israel was good for God. Time and time again, 
And we can read this in the Kings and the Chronicles and the Hebrew prophets time and time again. This fuzziness ended in disaster time and time again. God disabused Israel of its pretensions to greatness, its pretensions to righteousness, its pretensions to being the only people on earth whom God loved and cared about and saved. Now, there were lots of other sins along the way, not the least of which were those constant flirtations with foreign gods. But the many sins of nationalism, the sin of assuming self-sufficiency, the sin of pride, the sin of self-worship, the sin of placing trust in any other being or power than the one true and living God, these sins plagued Israel throughout biblical history, and they continue to plague the church today. And so I ask sincerely, can a Mennonite like fireworks? Or more to the point, how is a Mennonite to celebrate the 4th of July? How can we genuinely be grateful for all the good gifts that we receive as members of this society without slipping into idolatry? How can we give thanks for this place we call home, this people we call our own, the material prosperity that many of us enjoy without slipping into theological self-congratulation? How can we be both glad that God chose to place us in this wealthiest and most powerful nation on earth and have a bumper sticker on our cars calling on God to bless all people everywhere without exception and not have our heads explode from the apparent contradiction. Our scripture readings for today, I think, offer some answers. We'll start with Paul. Paul reminds us, Paul reminds us in very vivid and even agonized language that even we followers of Jesus are prone to wander, prone to doing exactly the wrong thing, even when we know it's the wrong thing, prone to not doing the right thing even when we know it's the right thing. And the law can be useful to us in determining right from wrong, but the law cannot make us choose right from wrong. In fact, Paul tells us that we are more than prone to wander. He suggests that we're born to wander. We're predisposed to making the wrong choice. We're genetically programmed to mess up. In our hearts, we know better. In our hearts, we delight in what is right, what is good, what is just, what is true. And then our hand reaches for exactly the wrong thing. We know what he talks about, don't we? Even if we don't accept Paul's sharp distinction between the spirit and the flesh, we know what he is describing because we've done exactly that, wanting to do one thing and then doing its opposite, wanting to love, but finding ourselves wounding our beloved, wanting to tell the truth, but telling something less, wanting to act justly, but then protecting our own interests. We know what Paul's talking about, don't we? Because he's talking about our everyday lives. Even those of us who, like Paul, have given ourselves over to being disciples of Jesus Christ, even we keep on struggling against this constant lurching, good to bad, right to wrong, wise to foolish. Now, it's important to admit that Paul here is talking about I think, talking about bodily kinds of sin, uh, sins of the flesh, as it were. He's not here talking about how Christians ought to behave with regard to the state, although one could argue that it is with our bodies that we are most likely to compromise with the state. But Paul does address that relationship elsewhere in his writings. And to name the most common example, let's recall that, that Paul regularly uses language reserved for the emperor, the language of lordship, to describe Jesus Christ. And in so doing, Paul makes clear that no matter what Caesar may say, 
no matter what Caesar may think. Even Caesar will someday bow at the mere mention of Jesus' name. So with that in mind, I trust that you'll bear with me as I make what may seem to be a bit of a stretch application-wise and suggest that what Paul says here actually is relevant to my questions. Well, let's think this through. We begin, for example, um, by giving thanks to God for the gift of freedom. But somewhere along the line, we begin to believe that that freedom is the result of the deaths of brave young men and women, or that it's something we would kill to defend, or that it is something that is ours by right. Then we step back, and in our hearts we we remind, none of that's true. But then the band starts to play, and the fireworks go off, and the politicians preach, and before we know it, we've fallen for it all over again. Then we remember our Anabaptist ancestors and the rigid boundary they established between the church and the state and our backs grow a bit straighter. But then we tune in and listen to a God and country sermon and find ourselves saying amen and nodding our heads even while our hearts are telling us to slow down, remember, lurching between a proper gratitude for God's many gifts and what I think can only be described as idolatry, offering our allegiance and even worship to the false gods of nation, self-sufficiency, military power, and national self-righteousness. Though this realization of our tendency to botch everything all of the time may seem like cause to despair, I think it may in fact offer the first answer to my questions. How can we Mennonites celebrate the 4th of July? I think we can begin by admitting that Paul is exactly right, that we are capable of slipping very quickly into behavior that we know in our hearts to be wrong, that we can quickly turn right intentions into bad behavior, that what begins in a genuinely Christian impulse to offer thanks to God for all that we've received can very quickly become an idolatrous impulse to claim America itself as the source of those gifts, that what begins in gratitude can quickly devolve into selfishness or self-protection or self-justification or plain old self-serving greed. I think we can best celebrate the 4th of July if we remember right from the get-go that we are all too capable of taking our gold and fashioning a calf to worship. And just as an aside, let's also admit that what Paul says about individuals is true about nations. Nations, even those founded in very high-sounding rhetoric, um, too often fail to live up to those words. They fail to do what they know to be right. If you come to dinner on a Monday evening here at church or consider the ongoing effects of poverty, of racism, poor health care, and, well, you'll see what I mean. So even while we remember our own propensity to sin, I think we need to admit, too, right from the beginning, that nations have exactly that same propensity. But Paul does not want us to stop with an acknowledgement of our sin, and so he asks... Who can save us from this body of death? Who can deliver us from our being prone to wander? Who can save us from our temptation to replace God with some other entity, from our tendency to choose what is wrong, even when we know what is right? Can the law save us? No, Paul says. All it can do is let us know that we're failing. Well, if not the law, then who can save us from this body of death? And the answer is, of course, that only God can save us 
and through our Lord Jesus Christ. The solution to our lurching, halting, stumbling walk from sin to life is not getting a better grip on ourselves. It's not working up the inner strength or the willpower or even the faith to do better next time. It's not about following the law or keeping the commandments or towing every line found in the Bible. We can do all of those things and more power to us, but we will find ourselves frustrated because there is nothing we can do under our own steam to make ourselves sinless, to make ourselves worthy of God's generosity and grace. Now, all we must do, all we can do, is once again say yes to Jesus, to surrender ourselves again and again and again to God's unspeakable grace revealed to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And there it is, that Lord language. And let me say again, this was language that the Romans used for the emperor. So we must reckon with the fact that Paul's use of that word meant something politically and not just spiritually. It was a way of declaring unambiguous allegiance to God through Christ. And here we find, I think, yet another answer to my question. We Mennonites can celebrate the 4th of July as long as we remember where our true allegiance lies. We can honor the founders of our nation. We can celebrate with red, white, and blue ice cream. We can watch the parades and ooh and ah over the fireworks. But we must never forget where our true allegiance lies. Not with our nation. Not even at its best and most noble. Not with our government. Not even at its most just and beneficial not with our way of life, not even at its most generous and loving, not with our military, not even at its most heroic and self-sacrificing. Our first loyalty, our only allegiance, our only allegiance is to Christ and to the God who sent him. But lest we slide into yet another kind of sin, let's listen to the prophet Zechariah. Lest we be tempted to exchange the lordship of Jesus for our lording it over everybody who doesn't believe like we do, Let's listen to the prophet. Lest we make the same mistake of Jesus for his followers and keep waiting for Christ to make some sort of triumphal move, sword in hand, overcoming the violent power of Rome with an even greater, more powerful violence. Let's give Zechariah his due. It's a due worth giving since Jesus himself gave it when he entered Jerusalem on the way to the cross. Like first century Jews, we, 21st century North Americans, admire power. We also resent it when it's in the hands of an enemy or an oppressor. In fact, we often exaggerate our enemy's power in order to justify our admiration for our own because our power is, after all, the only thing that keeps us safe, the only thing that keeps the enemies at bay, the only thing that's protecting the world from some terrible evil. First century Jews look back to the glory days of the Maccabees when Jews ruled themselves by virtue of their military might. And, of course, their faithfulness to God. They long for a Messiah, a military leader, a warrior king, to come and overthrow the Romans and their Jewish lackeys and restore David's kingdom in Jerusalem. And then Jesus came. There's a good bit of scholarly discussion about what exactly the disciples expected of Jesus and whether specific disciples like Judas, for example, were eagerly awaiting the day when Jesus would um, call on them to take up their arms and rise up and overcome the Romans. But I think it would be safe to say that common wisdom was that whoever Messiah would be, he would be capable of fighting the Romans with their own weapons and with all the power of God. 
the Hebrew scriptures provided other ways of understanding and thinking about the Messiah. But none was as popular or common as that of the military leader, which makes sense to us, I think, even to us Mennonites, raised as we have been in a culture which glorifies violence, especially the violence committed by nations. It's no wonder that even we Mennonites find it difficult to talk about peacemaking without feeling self-conscious and defensive. We fear being called political, liberal, unpatriotic. We fear being accused of replacing the gospel of salvation with the gospel of peace. We worry about being called self-righteous or unrealistic or naive. And maybe in our heart of hearts, we worry too about what might actually happen if we were to have our way. What terrible evil might be unleashed if we really did lay down our weapons and put our trust in God. And so even we, perhaps, wish for a Messiah who's going to come in power and set things right, taking care of the bad guys, overcoming power with an even greater power. A Messiah not unlike a Tolkien hero who reluctantly uses violence, but only against the bad guys. But Zechariah tells us to hold our horses. He foretells of a coming Messiah who's neither powerful nor warlike, a Messiah who is humble, who rides on a donkey, a Messiah without weapons, without violence, And when Jesus made his formal entrance into Jerusalem, when he enacted the traditional return of the king to the city, he looked to Zechariah for his influence. And so signaled to the disciples and to all those with ears to hear and eyes to see that something new was coming, something unexpected. No chariots, no swords, no bows. Peace, humility, service, a willingness to lay his life down. And it is this one we call Lord. As we celebrate, if we celebrate the 4th of July, we remind ourselves and each other of our penchant toward turning something good into something bad, our tendency to do what is wrong even when we know what is right. This humility and self-awareness can, I think, work against our natural tendency to move from gratitude to and worship of God to gratitude to and worship of the state. It can work against our tendency toward idolatry, a tendency of biblical proportions and as old or older than Moses himself. And as we celebrate, if we celebrate, we also remember that our first allegiance is to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we remember that Christ is Lord, not Caesar, not the president, not any other human ruler or power. And this reminder, I think, helps us keep our gratitude properly focused and sets limits on our love of country. It doesn't make that love impossible. It simply holds it in its proper place. And as we celebrate, if we celebrate, we remember that the one we call Lord is humble, gentle, peaceful, a king who rides on a donkey, a Lord who came to serve. This reminder, I think, serves as the kind of stark contrast we need to the uniform glorification of violence in our culture. I think it can help us resist the sentimental and yet hypocritical supporting of the troops promoted by those whose every other public act works against the well-being of men and women in the service. It's the kind of bracing reminder we need. 
on a regular basis every time we gather to keep us firm in our commitment to be faithful to Christ in ways which accurately and humbly reflect the truth of the gospel of nonviolence and reconciliation. Our God is not made known in mighty acts of redemptive violence, but in the death of God's own child, freely given. Well, it's not my intent to put a damper on anybody's Fourth of July celebrations. Um, There's obviously a lot more to those celebrations than naked patriotism. There's community, there's family, there's cake and ice cream and barbecue, and notice the order I put those in. Cake and ice cream and barbecue and salad and swimming and laughter and storytelling and croquet and, yes, fireworks after dark. I don't want this sermon to ruin your family picnic or spoil anyone's evening at Long's Park. If you go there tonight, I hope you enjoy the music and that you feel free to ooh and ah with the best of them. But sisters and brothers, we are called to gratitude. Gratitude which does not discount the human hand that offers it, the human heart that dreamed it, the human spirit that made it come to pass. But a gratitude which does not stop there, but instead looks past those hands, those hearts, those spirits to the God of heaven and earth. A gratitude guided by a clear understanding of our propensity to turn everything, well, even something well-intended, into something evil. A gratitude shaped by our central belief that only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus is rightly named Lord, and that our allegiance is to him and him alone. A gratitude informed by the prophetic vision of Zechariah, of a Lord both humble and peaceful, the very wisdom and power of God. So are Mennonites allowed to like fireworks? I do. Not as much as I once did, but I think that's probably more a function of my age, as is most everything else about me these days. Um, more a function of my age than my theology or worldview. Perhaps when I'm a grandparent, I'll recover that old sense of wonder. But for now, I guess I have to settle for the memories stirred by the sound of booms and crackles and the sight of sparks falling like stars from the sky. Memories of old celebrations innocent expressions of joy, and a childlike appreciation of the sheer size of God's gift of community, of people, of country. On this Fourth of July weekend, may we, may we know ourselves to be blessed by God. May we know ourselves as sinners redeemed by God through our Lord Jesus Christ. May we know ourselves as people whose allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. May we know ourselves as followers of a Lord who rides on a donkey, humble, mild. May we be grateful for God's gift and never lose sight of the giver. And may we lift our faces to the sky and listen in wonder at what comes next. Amen.